Um, welcome again to our gathering. Happy Father's Day. Keep your Bibles right where they are. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 will be our primary text for this morning, though we're going to look at a few other things too, uh, but we're going to do an exposition of that text. First, I'm sad and glad uh, to announce that uh, we will be wrapping up our series, The Work of Christ, today. Uh, this will be the 11th part, and uh, I've just thoroughly enjoyed this study, time that I've had with the Lord, and even just the time of preaching uh, before you, and just the, the great work that the Lord's done in my life through this series of just revealing more and more of who Christ is and what he's done and accomplished on my behalf, on your behalf. And so uh, it's, a, it's a bittersweet thing to say that uh, this series is coming to an end today. But then again, uh, we're a short church. If you were going to blame us for something as a church, you would blame us for talking about Jesus all the time and his work. So it's not like, okay, we're not going to talk about that anymore. We did the 11 parts. Now let's move on to some other things. Uh, we are a gospel-centered church, and we're going to keep talking about Jesus. Um, and I'm anticipating and excited and even nervous about our next series in the book of Daniel where I want to preach Christ from Daniel. So, um, because all of scripture points to Jesus and to his work. And so I'm excited about that. I have no idea how that's going to work out. Going to really have to rely on the spirit. That is a very confusing book. The first six chapters, piece of cake for me. It's just history. The last six, Lord help me. It's prophecy, it's apocalyptic, so it should be uh, interesting. But anyways, uh, we have a task uh, to accomplish today, and we are talking about, this is the last part, we're talking about uh, the return of Christ, which is, uh, which is also his work. What are, um, you know, some of the things that we've covered just over the last 10 weeks or so, his incarnation, his childhood his ascension last week, and I don't know about you, put your hand up if God just blessed you through that sermon last week and that scripture. I was just so blessed by this new understanding of the ascension of Christ that I've gained through that time of study, and I don't know, I just felt like the Spirit was really moving in a powerful way last weekend, the whole weekend, and the sermon is just, I don't know, it's just one example of how great God has been to us through this whole thing, but we have covered like these primary big time events and things that he did during his ministry, and, and we're, we're on one now, his return, and, and I'm excited to preach this to you this morning. Even though Christ completed his earthly work when he died on the cross and rose again and when he ascended into heaven, uh, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he has more yet to do, Okay? He will come again to finish the work of his kingdom. For centuries, the church has referred to the return of Christ as the blessed hope. Uh, maybe you've heard that phrase. You've heard it associated with his glorious appearance or his return or what have you. But the church typically calls his return our blessed hope. And I think it's because all Christians should and most by new nature do await that return. They, it, they consider it a blessed event, it's something that we're anticipating and waiting for. Uh, and it's our blessed hope. It's something that we long for. It's something that, that we cannot wait to experience. But when we think of the word or use the word hope, you know, from the English language perspective, we're usually referring to something that we 
hope can happen. It might not necessarily happen, but it's something that we're hoping can take place. Uh, Think of it in terms of maybe your football team, or since it's baseball season, your baseball team. If someone were to ask you, hey, I'm not a Giants fan. I know many of you are, so I'll use Giants as an example, but, you know, are the Giants going to win the World Series? Well, your answer would be, if you said yes, you probably really don't know what you're talking about at this point. It's too early to determine, but you would say, I hope so. I hope they win. Now, I'm an Atlanta Braves fan, and I can just tell you there's no hope. Uh, So much like there's no hope in the Niners getting to, you know, to anything beyond what they're already doing. Uh, and in fact, for the first time in a long time, I have more hope that the Raiders might actually be able to do something. Amen. It's always got to be at least two of them right there. That's two. Um, but we would say, I hope they win. I hope that, you know, they make it, that the Giants make it to the pennant. I hope they make it to the World Series and win. And that's what we think of when we think of hope in our terms we're, we're hoping that something can take place. It's not for sure. It's not guaranteed. It's a hope. That's kind of the English perspective. We cannot be sure if our team will win the championship. Now, the New Testament, in the New Testament categories, the Greek word, it's, it's called elpis, which is translated as hope over and over and over in the New Testament. That particular version of hope never, ever, ever lacks certainty. Okay, when you're reading the New Testament, you might see the word hope appear, and you might be thinking to yourself about your baseball team. Well, I hope this happens. Well, I hope it's, I guess it's a possibility. But hope, from the New Testament perspective, in New Testament categories, Elpis, it has to do with its guarantee. It's something, it's like insurance. It's something that you can base your life on, your hope on, because it's certain. So there's a huge difference when we're talking about just the generalized idea of hope and hope in the New Testament. The hope of which the New Testament speaks refers to the promises God has made, the fulfillment of which is absolutely certain. There's no doubt about it. You see, hope in the New Testament, it's a guarantee. It's more of an exhortation to base your hope on what's actually going to take place, not some kind of a weird spiritual estimation. There's no doubt about it. So the, the blessed hope of which I speak of here, the return of Christ, it is also what we just sang, our blessed assurance. That's why we sang that song. This is, this is a, a true, permanent hope because it's really going to happen. And I tell you, there are so many times when I look out and, and I watch the news for a moment or I just really start to think about all that's going on around me and then I, then I, I, I estimate in that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus first came and I start thinking about all this stuff and I, I, I lose hope and it just, because it doesn't seem like something's going to happen. It doesn't seem like Jesus is going to come back. Oh, but this is, a, this, is a, this is a true hope because Christ is coming back. It really doesn't matter what's playing out around us or what we see or how we feel. It's a guaranteed thing. There's no doubt about it. 
This is our blessed hope, and it's our, really our blessed assurance. We can rest assured that Christ will return someday, just as he came the first time. That's the funny thing, right? Because as Christians, we don't deny his first coming. We've experienced that in, at some spiritual level. The Holy Spirit's worked that in our lives. We agree with that. But then why is it that we doubt the second coming or, the, or his glorious appearance? We don't have a problem with the first time. Seems like we have a problem with the second time because of all the stuff that's going on. Well, I'll tell you, the New Testament has a lot to say about the return of Christ. A lot. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 really is a key text. That's why I had it read to you, and that's why we're going to study it. Let's just pray and get to work, just taking it apart and looking at it. Father, again, we, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to the truth, as Kelly was saying earlier, and uh, we just want to submit ourselves to you, and we pray that you would teach us today. And it wouldn't just be something that goes into our heads and kind of stays there, and something that we learn to, to repeat and to say to others. This would, this, that this truth would go beyond our minds and settle in our hearts and produce real New Testament hope, because this is a real event that will take place. Help us to fix our hope on the return of Christ, because we know we're going to see here that it's true, that it's a guarantee. Maybe that'll help us today with the way we're living, the way we're thinking. Just have your way with us today, Father. Send the Spirit in power, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. And we definitely need hope, don't we, today? Well, I'm hoping that's what God produces here. Let's look at 13 through 14. Verses 13 through 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 14. Paul says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What on earth is he talking about here? Well, I tell you the first thing that I noticed about the text is it seems that Paul's goal here is to comfort the Thessalonians who were apparently saddened that their dead loved ones were very likely going to miss the triumphal return of Christ or the glorious appearance, however you want to refer to it. That seems to be what's happening in this text. These folks somehow got hung up on the death that they were experiencing in their congregation, their community. They were seeing their loved ones pass away, and then they were thinking, okay, so they're gone Okay, what does that mean? And then what if Christ were to come back? They're not going to be a part of this thing that's going to happen because believe it or not, the first century church was anticipating the return of Christ right after he left. I mean, that's the kind of persecution and things they were suffering and dealing with. They, they assumed that, man, I think Christ was going to turn around and come right back. And they were so concerned and worried about their loved ones. Are they going to miss this grand event? This whole idea of trying to comfort the Thessalonians on the death of their loved ones and the return of Christ and how they'll be a part of that, it's it really hinged and based on verse 18. If you just fast forward a little bit, it says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul gives this exhortation that, look, man, your, your family members, they're, they're going to be included in this thing. And, and he just, you know, we fast forward a little bit and says, man, encourage the church with these words. So he's coming at it from 
trying to build hope and trying to take that view that they have of death and these things and, and turn it into a biblical view so that they won't be acting like everyone else around them. For some reason or another, the Thessalonians had a distorted view of death and of the resurrection. They just had a twisted view of that, and I believe it's very common in the church today. These Thessalonians thought that when your body is laid in a tomb or in a casket, in our terms, that's it. That's that's all she wrote. They had a sort of fatalistic mindset about death. Well, once you die, that's just kind of it. Now, this distortion of death caused them emotional pain, and we see that reflected in the term that Paul used. What does he say? Grieving. You know, so they were grieving and grieving and grieving the loss of loved ones, so much so that they were acting like those who have no hope at all. And this comes from a distorted view of death and the return of Christ and resurrection and all of these things. Their pain, their emotional pain over the loss of their loved ones or someone who was very dear to them, maybe a brother or sister, I don't know. We don't know. We don't have the answers. Their pain over these losses or loss had become so great that they had begun as believers to act like those who have no hope. Unbelievers. Unbelievers don't have the hope that we have. They don't have the hope of a resurrection or of a Messiah or of any of these things or the return of Christ. They had kind of forsaken their identity and the truth and become like those in the community around them. The death of a loved one killed them emotionally because they didn't understand. Paul essentially tells them this is not the case for those who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a.k.a. the gospel. Those who have fallen asleep, the term that he uses, and Jesus will return with him. The term asleep is a a euphemism for death. But the Bible never uses the term asleep or sleep when referring to unbelievers, only to the passing of believers. Sleep explains what happens to a Christian's body at death, not his spirit or soul. The Bible never teaches that you know, a Christian's soul goes to sleep upon death. And maybe you've heard of that wrong theological term, soul sleep. You've heard of that? The soul goes to sleep when you die, and then it's awakened when Christ comes. Well, if that's true, then what does it mean for the spirit of a man when he dies to go be in the Lord's presence? Somehow they don't work together. Soul sleep is a false doctrine that is taught by Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. The soul of the believer who has passed away is unconscious in reference to this world, but wide awake and fully conscious of the world to come. When Stephen was martyred, we read about that in the book of Acts, when Stephen was martyred, his spirit went to be with the Lord but his body fell asleep. That's what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. His spirit went to be, you remember he was getting hit with those rocks and he, and he, you know, and, and he, and he died right there on that moment. They martyred, they murdered, they killed him. And right then at that moment, it says his body fell asleep, but his spirit went to be with the Lord. 
His spirit didn't fall asleep with his dead body and remain there in the dead body and then go to a tomb. And When the thief on the cross, remember Jesus was flanked by two. He had one on each side of him, one who was yelling curses at him and telling him, save us, you dummy. And the other one saying, man, you're messing with God here. This guy's innocent. You had these two thieves. When one of those thieves died, his spirit went to be with the Lord in what? Paradise. That's not soul sleep. Read about that in Luke 23, 43. When a believer dies, his or her spirit goes immediately into the presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. It is the body that sleeps, not the soul. As Christians, we will not taste death even for a nanosecond. But wait a minute, what are you talking about? I I can envision my body laying on a a table with the paddles. I'm going to die. But you know what? In your spirit and in your consciousness, you will not experience death. You will not. Who you are on the inside as a person thinking and living and all that, that part of you goes to be in the Lord's presence. That is your spirit. That is your soul. It's just your body that lays there on the gurney. So we will not experience death in terms of our soul or spirit. Your consciousness, it transitions from right here into the presence of the Lord. And there is something divine and miraculous that happens in that moment because the sinful nature and those things go away. Your thinking becomes clear now for the first time ever. I mean, literally, before the doctor has a chance to pronounce you dead You will be, if you're in Christ, you will be in the presence of the Lord. That sound, beep, you're gone. That's a dreadful sound. Well, you ain't going to hear it. You're not going to be like in these Hollywood productions where you're hovering above your gurney looking at everyone. What's going on down here? Wow, I feel like I got a balloon on me. I don't know what to do, you know? That's just stupid. I was in heaven for 90 minutes and I came back. You would never want to come back. On the way back down, you'd be saying, take me back. Before a doctor has a chance to pronounce you dead, you are in the presence of the Lord. Your consciousness, your spirit, your soul, that is where you are. It is your body that's laying there asleep. Scripture even talks about when your body is buried underground or put in a tomb, it's like a seed that's planted. And in order for a seed to bring about plant life, it must die and then it sprouts. It's like the seed dies becoming a plant. It's kind of the same thing with us. That's, those are the metaphors and examples used when explaining the resurrection, is what Paul says. So you ain't going to die. Your body will sleep, but your soul, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. And that's what he's saying here to these people. What a comfort that must have been. So what you're saying is I won't be trapped like in this dead body trying to trying to get out, I just, or I, I just sleep there and wait for something to happen. Boy, the Lord sure seems to be taking a long time to come back. I'm going to be sitting in that rotty ground for a long No. That's exactly what he's countering here, is that mentality and that thinking, that fatalism. In verse 14, he wrote, Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have what? Fallen asleep. This is his way of saying, your dead loved ones, and he doesn't even refer to them as dead, right, but as asleep, because there really isn't any true death for the Christian. Remember, through the resurrection, Jesus has conquered death, 
We're not going to, our physical bodies won't even stay dead forever. They will be raised in glorious form. This is like him saying, your dead loved ones, and he doesn't even use the term dead, but asleep, will be raised and brought with Christ at his glorious appearance. He's saying, they're not going to be left behind. They're not going to miss this grand event. Look at 15. Paul continues, he says, for this we declare to you by the by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He takes it even further by saying that God has decreed to raise and join believers who have fallen asleep, died with Christ first when he appears in Shekinah glory. He's telling them, look, not only are your loved ones going to be raised up with Christ when he comes back, but if we're still breathing when it happens, they're going to get there first. That's what he's saying. They go to be with him before you and I do who are alive. If Christ were to appear at at 2 p.m. this afternoon, I don't know why I picked 2 p.m. Maybe it's a good time because I'm usually really tired. If he were to come back at 2 p.m. this afternoon, the tombs and caskets of every sleeping believer would burst forth with life and we would see all of these glorified saints ascending to the Lord in the clouds, in the Shekinah glory cloud. And once they're all up there, our feet will begin to to lift off. It'll be really awkward and weird because we don't normally fly. And then we'll find ourselves floating up to that congregation. It's going to be quite a thing. Yeah, it sounds a little sci-fi-ish. I get it. It's what the scriptures teach. Now, I don't know if it looks awkward like I do right now, but it's probably more like the perfect swan dive. And Cameron will be trying to cannonball on his way up, you know. It's going to be an interesting thing. I don't know exactly how it plays out, but I know that it'll come to pass. It'll happen. And this idea that that those who are asleep in Christ, I mean, if you were to come back at two, those who are asleep, they'll be raised to new life into glorious form and be caught up to him before we will, if we're still breathing at two o'clock today. And I tell you what, rather than, rather than grieving, this is a Thessalonians perspective here, rather than grieving over the absence of their asleep or their sleeping loved ones, they ought to rejoice in the fact that, you know, how they get to go first. Why would you sit there and mourn and grieve over and over? And I'll tell you what, death is a serious thing. And I'm not telling you for one moment to be a, a weird sociopath and not mourn over the loss of your loved ones. Of course, that would be really weird if you didn't do that. But sometimes the death of a loved one can cripple someone emotionally for 20 years, for five years, for four years, for 10 years, for 15 years. In fact, some people never recover and get over that loss. Well, I'm here to tell you, if that person is in Christ, they're in a much better place than you. In fact, if Jesus were to return before you breathe your last breath and your spirit goes to be with him, you're going to see your husband going to him first. It's not wrong to mourn over the loss of someone whom we love. But it should not destroy us. Honestly, it's going to sound really crazy, but they have it pretty good. To be in the presence of the Lord, Paul says, is far superior to being down here on this side of glory. And they will be raised to new life just as you will. 
And if it happens before you fall asleep, you'll see them go first, and then you'll join with them there. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that the way that we deal with our loved ones passing away, those who are close to us, it, man, if they're, in, if, if they're not in Christ, it's horrific. If they are in Christ, it's a celebration. It's a celebration of their life, but it's a celebration of the work of Christ because they're now getting to experience the thing that we long to experience as we're still breathing and living. And there's nothing like being in his presence. I mean, we, we get a little snapshot of what that's like down on this side of glory, right? I felt like we were in the presence of Christ last week. I didn't want that service to end. And that was like a 1% job right there. Nothing compared to what it's like, even for your spirit to go to be in his presence. And when that resurrection happens, oh man, it'd be nothing like it. I hope he does come back at 2 o'clock, to be honest with you. I mean, it says in the scripture, he's not going to lose any whom the Father has given to him, so you don't have to worry about people, you know, the people that aren't, you know, well, what about all these people that won't be saved? Well, there certainly will be many people who won't be saved, but all whom the Father has given to the Son will be saved. And if you're in Christ, that's you, and if that's your daughter or child or husband, and they love Christ, and that's them, and you're not going to lose any whom he has chosen to save. And, and, and I know that rubs us weird. Well, I don't like the fact that he's chosen some. Uh, you know what? You need to get over yourself and rejoice that he's chosen any. Because he certainly does not have to do anything with us. In fact, if I were God, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just save me. I'd be the only one going up. This is what I wanted. Of course, I'd flip over backwards, you know, and... That's a miracle that he's chosen to save any. He's not going to lose any. If he comes back tomorrow, he doesn't lose any whom he's chosen to save. None will be lost. Look at 16 and 17. All right, so he's comforting them. He's trying to tell them, look, man, you're mourning over their, the loss of these loved ones, and they're just sleeping. Their spirit's with the Lord. And, and if he comes back tomorrow or whenever, he can, they're going to go up first, and then you. How great is this? They, their perspective's got to be changing here. And he's just going to continue to build this theology right here for them. 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There it is. Then we who are alive, who are left, I love that, who are left, like, ah, oh, we're here still will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Man, that's the end goal. That's salvation, to always be with the Lord. Now let's look at some of the key phrases in, the, in this couple of verses here. We'll descend from heaven. And I just thought, what a practical way to look at that. You know, four words. In times of turmoil and, and trial and struggle and, and loss and these sorts of things that we experience, we often say, where is God? How did this happen? Where was he? Where is, where is you? Where are you? Where is the Lord in this situation? Have you ever said that? Have you ever been brought to such emotional pain or fear that you say, where is God in the midst of this? Where is he? 
In fact, the people of Orlando might be saying this very thing. Many there. Paul answered this question for us right here in these four words. When the Lord returns, He will descend from heaven, which means that He is currently in heaven. That's where He is, and that never changes until He comes back. So when you ask the question, you must respond with the correct theological, biblical answer. Wait a minute, I know where you are. You're on your throne. We learned last Sunday that when Christ ascended, and that was roughly 2,000 years ago, maybe a little shy of that, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is where He is right now. But it's more than that. The Spirit of Christ is also in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. When you say in the midst of turmoil, where is God? If you're a believer, He's in you. This is why Jesus could say, I I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. When he said that, he meant that I'm going to give you the Spirit. And I will be in you. Well, certainly our emotions can be so damaged in that moment that we feel like God is gone and that there's no presence of Christ or anything. But how we feel and the events that we experience in these things don't change what is true. They don't change the ultimate reality. Christ manifests His Spirit in every believer through the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. When you go through trials, Christ is there with you, in you, in spirit. And He physically sits upon His heavenly throne, ruling the galaxies, ruling the universe. Christ is is never absent. He is Never gone, although it might seem so. But he has not gone. And and I think this is why Paul uh, rather regularly exhorts believers to be careful with how they use their bodies. If we join ourselves to something sinful, and he uses the example of a prostitute, we join the Lord to a prostitute, in a sense. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. We're to be mindful of how we live and how we behave and how we act because when we engage in things, the Lord engages in them with us in a sense. No, He doesn't become a sinner. But we take His Spirit through those experiences. That's how close He is. It's a rather important thing. Descending coming at this time shows where he's at he's on his throne but he's also on the throne of your heart if you're in christ he's there what do you do when you're in a difficult situation in trial you cry out to him acknowledge his presence and he will give you the peace that transcends understanding in the midst of the worst fiery trials and things it's pretty unreal what Christians have been able to pull off in the middle of it, you know, especially the old martyrs, you know, they're tied to a stake and the the flames are licking their ankles and they're sitting here worshiping the Lord. What? They didn't believe the Lord was off in some other galaxy. He was right there with them, suffering with them. Do you remember what Jesus told Saul of Tarsus? 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my brethren? He said, why are you persecuting me? Because when Saul was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is in all those Christians. That's where he is. He's here. And he's on his throne. I would say, in spirit, spiritually he is here. Physically he's on his throne. Look at it that way. Because he is a physical person with a physical body. Another phrase, with a cry of command, this appears to be a type of wake-up call, like you get at a hotel, except those are very gentle. Your phone rings, it's 7 a.m., time to get up, you hang up on them, right? This appears to be some sort of a wake-up call, that's what it looks like, like, wake up! It is meant to raise the dead in Christ and grab the attention of everyone else. What the heck was that? Tombs split and open. This is that cry of command. That's what it appears to be. Another phrase, with a voice of an archangel. The scriptures identify two archangels. Some say there's more. I can only find two in scripture. That's Michael and Gabriel. One of them is going to give this cry of command. One of them is going to give this wake-up call, if you want to call it that. With the sound of the trumpet of God. This trumpet blast. I don't know if it's a chauffeur, one of those you know, horns that the Jews blow. I don't know what kind of trumpet it is. Whatever it is, this instrument is going to be used and it is going to blast and that is going to sound the end of the church age, which is what we are enjoying right now. And it's going to mark the beginning. Actually, the return, it does three things really. Marks the end of the church age, announces the arrival or the return of Christ or the glorious appearance, and it summons the tribulation time, this period of judgment. And then it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, this is the primary point Paul is seeking to establish through this sequence of events. These things are going to happen. And then the, the dead in Christ will rise. In other words, these things will result in the dead in Christ being raised first. And that's, remember, he's trying to build hope with these Thessalonians. He wants them to know their loved ones are not done. And it says, and then, and then all of us will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Again, there's the end goal of salvation in a sense, to be with him forever. At this point, Christ will lead us into heaven so that God can unleash judgment upon the nations for about seven years or so. Now, I must say that this interpretation and what I've just said, it squares with what we would call pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, that's an eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things or the study of end times. And there are really like, like four primary eschatologies out there. You got the pre-trib, you got the amillennial, you got these sorts of things. I don't want to get into all that. I thought I'd go there, but I really don't want to. I think we'll touch on some of that when we're in Daniel. Maybe. And it, it, when you start looking at all the views, it becomes very confusing. And, and you can find a little bit of truth in each one. And Paul Rogers would say, you can't find any truth in any of them other than pre-trib rapture. Uh, we, we've gone rounds. But what I've just given you is an interpretation from that. And honestly, these eschatologies are all referred to as theories. So it's important that we don't build our entire life on them because there are variations in things. And some people, that's all they talk about is what's going to happen in the end. And they act like experts and that's all they ever focus on. And it's like, well, you know what? That's questionable what you're saying. 
Now, this pre-trib rapture view is the most common end times view or eschatology in the church today. It wasn't for a long time, but it is today. There's been a resurgence of it. And you've got some things out there that are kind of helped to catapult that up, although there's inconsistencies in them because they're more Hollywood than anything, but you think of Left Behind series and those sorts of things, the Tim LaHaye work and stuff. Those things are all pre-trib rapture kind of stuff, but there's a lot of Hollywood in there too, so you've got to be careful. We do hold this pre-trib rapture view at the church here, but I have to admit to you that, that I hold it very loosely. Because there are points in the other eschatologies that seem to make sense and throw a monkey wrench in the one that I've had since I've been a believer for about 15 years. The amillennial view, which denies the millennial reign of Christ, okay, so that has to do with when Christ, you know, he comes back the second time, you know, he establishes a millennial reign. They deny that whole thing. Their position is that when Christ appears, the Thessalonian passage, when he appears that way, that's it. There's no leaving and coming and going and all. It's just done. He comes down here, puts the, puts an end to his enemies, and some of these other things happen we see in Revelation, but that's it. So they deny this thousand-year reign of Christ. And they paint a different picture of verses 16 and 17 in our text here. The cry of command is not a wake-up call. It's a battle cry. The trumpet blast means war. You know, just think of the old movies. You know, and you got the guys charging. That's, the, that's how they paint this text. You know, you got the guys lined up. You got a guy out there that gives a charge, you know, and you got a trumpet blast. That's, that's the way that they sort of interpret this section that we're looking at. You know, they, they, the, the trumpet blast blows, and then, and then we're, you know, we're, the dead are raised and joined with him in Shekinah, and the alive are raised and joined with him in Shekinah. And, and we don't turn and go into heaven where it will be safe, but we actually come down with him upon the earth and defeat the enemies of God and establish the Lord's kingdom. That's their view. And to be honest with you, I, I prefer it over the one I just gave you. And the reason why is because that view seems to fit this text far better, at least the context. Now, this doesn't mean that I agree with everything the amillennials say, because I don't, because they have no provision for Israel. They do a lot of violence to Romans 9, 10, and 11, because they just deny Israel as anything. And I, I do believe God has a future plan for Israel, that they'll be saved as we are saved. And, you know, so you've got to be careful there. So they, they get that part wrong, but I think they get this text right, especially when you consider the context. Now, I'll give you the context. When the Roman legions were dispatched to go into a foreign country on a military campaign, their standards, their signage, bore the letters SPQR, an abbreviation for Senatus Populus K. Romanus, Latin, which means the Senate and the people of Rome. It was understood in Rome that the conquests of the military were not simply for the politicians who governed, because that certainly seems to be what's happening in our day with our government, right? It wasn't just for the politicians who governed their military campaigns, but for all the citizens of a city, in particular Rome. The army might be gone for a campaign for two or three years. Finally, the soldiers would return, leading captives in chains. Now, Paul's used some of that language in the last couple of weeks that we've been studying the text. You know, if Christ comes back to the ascension, he comes back and he parades the enemies before God in a sense and, 
And he has us and he gives gifts to men. We looked at all that during the ascension. Now the soldiers would camp outside the city and send a messenger to alert the Senate and the people that the legions had returned. When the news arrived, the people began to prepare to receive the conquering heroes. When everything was ready, a trumpet was sounded. With that, the citizens of the city went out to where the army was camped and joined the soldiers in marching into the city. The idea was that they had participated in the triumph of their conquering army. Now, this is the exact language that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This is what he's telling the Thessalonians. He's giving them this example. He was saying, in essence, he was saying, the parallel here is that when Christ comes back in conquering power, believers, both dead and alive, will be caught up in the air with him, just as the citizens of Rome would go out to meet the army. Because when the Lord comes back, he comes back with angel armies, does he not? He's saying, when Christ comes back in conquering power, believers, both dead and alive, will be caught up in the air, not to stay up there, but to join in his return in triumph, to participate in his exaltation. Now that's a different view. That's the amillennial interpretation of what we're looking at, not ours. Because ours says, says when we go up, we leave, and then tribulation happens. And then you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so if Christ comes back and that's his second coming, it's not like his glorious appearance where we leave. If he comes back and that's it, and he gathers his church, and he comes to earth and conquers and does all that, then what does that mean for all the text in Revelation that talks about the bold judgments and the scrolls and all that? Why would God leave his people or bring his people back down to earth to have to deal with all of that carnage? Because during that seven-year period, there is going to be carnage like nothing the world has ever seen. One-third of humanity is wiped out almost instantly. And so... The argument is that, okay, so we can't be here when that kind of carnage is unleashed because Christians would suffer and die along with everyone else around them. The response to that is, how did the Lord preserve his people during the first Passover? Can the Lord not protect his people even as he unleashes judgment on everyone else around them? Of course he can. It's logic. In any case, there's good arguments on both sides. I still hold to the pre-trib view that we're taken out of here while that happens. Then we come back with them after the seven years, and that's the actual second coming. I'm not convinced of the other argument, but I tell you what, doesn't it not line up good with this text? The context certainly does. So, one of the future works of Christ is his glorious appearance and the rapture of the church that is a work that he's going to do in the future that's what we're looking at what other things is christ planning to do in the future i have a few other works for you and we'll move out of that text into some other things christ will judge the church second corinthians 5 10 and right now you're saying to yourself wait a minute we don't go through a judgment we're believers it's the world that gets judged no 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 the church is going to be judged it's not the same kind of judgment, but there's a judgment that's coming for us. Now, this happens after the rapture, but before the second coming, right? That's the pre-trib view. This judgment has nothing to do with salvation because we are justified by faith alone, not by works. 
So it's not a matter of whether you're saved or not. You don't stand before God and he determines whether you're saved or not. You are, if you're a Christian, you're saved. It doesn't have to do with your salvation. It has to do with whatever good you did while being in Christ as a believer. We call it the Bema judgment. And, and, and the good that we did while, while as a believer, the good deeds that we did for the Lord and for His kingdom and for others, the love and these things that we exhibited, we will be rewarded for those things. And the chaff and the garbage and the crap that we engaged in, those things will be discarded. Not going to be judged critically like, well, you, you know, the scales are pulled out. You did a lot of good and a lot of bad. I'm not going to let you into heaven. That's what everyone thinks it happens. That's not the way it goes down. The bad that we did, the deeds that we didn't do, the opportunities that we didn't take advantage of, those things will be discarded and cast away. The good things that we did will be rewarded. That's the judgment that's coming for us. And I think it happens after the rapture, but before, maybe during that seven years. Very important that you understand this. Because what you do is being recorded and will be brought to your attention at that point. Don't don't go hyper grace. Well, I just got grace so I can do what I want. Really? Grace, true grace is transformative. It changes who you are. And you begin to live for Christ. You know, a lot of people say, well, I got grace, so I'll just sin all I want. Okay. There's a day coming where you're going to deal with that. That's not the way you should do it. Christ will judge his church. It's something that he's going to do in the future. Christ will imprison the devil. Revelation 20, verses 2 through 3. That's another thing that's going to happen when he comes back. He's locked up for like a thousand years. Christ, and this is all pre-trib. Paul Rogers is happy. Uh, Christ will restore Israel. Okay, that's not the amillennial view. (laughs) That's the biggest problem I have with their view. They don't think there's anything for Israel in the future. And you got to cancel out a lot of what 9, 10, and 11 of Romans says. Because Paul talks about it over and over. Christ will restore Israel. Romans 11, 26. There is a restoration that happens. Many, many Jews will be saved, primarily during that seven-year period. There's a restoration coming for Israel. Will they be saved apart from Christ, the Messiah, and the gospel? No. No, that's why the amillennials reject it. They think that somehow these, all these Jews are going to get saved in some other way. God only saves by the blood of Jesus. They will believe in Jesus. That's how they're going to get saved. It's important to know that. Because there's not two different camps. Well, the Jews got saved because they're Jews. We got saved because we love Jesus. No, the Jews get saved because they love Jesus. Imperative that we understand that. There's a restoration coming from Israel. He's going to work that out. After, and this is one of the challenging things for me that doesn't make a lot of sense, but after the thousand-year reign, Christ will set the devil free and he will return to deceiving the nations, but Christ will defeat him and his followers once and for all. Revelation 27 through 10 That's one of the difficulties I have with pre-trib rapture view. I don't understand the loosing of Satan and all that chaos again. Doesn't mean it's not true. I have a hard time with it. There's a purpose for it, I'm sure. Christ will hand the keys of his kingdom over to the Father who will execute final judgment, create a new heaven, create a new earth, create a new Jerusalem, and establish the everlasting kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, Revelation 21, 1 through 27, talks about all those things. They're all there in Scripture. You really can't deny them. When will, here's a great question, when will the glorious appearance and rapture take place, right? 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4 provides great answers. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord, he's directly speaking about him coming back. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They had a twisted view here, too, that no, he's already come. He's not coming back. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat, his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this fantastic little passage gives us two clues about the glorious appearance and the rapture, when that'll take place. First, an upsurge in apostasy must happen or take place. Paul said it like this, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And rebellion in this text means apostasy. Apostasy is not the same as paganism or just general unbelief. Pagans are people who have never professed faith in Christ. Apostates are people who have made a profession of faith in Christ, but who have fallen away from the truth of the gospel. Churches can become apostate going from a confession of faith that is godly, biblical, and true to, in, to an embrace of pagan concepts and behavioral patterns. So what Paul's talking about here is there's going to be something that happens in the visible church that's just extraordinary. So many of these professing believers are no longer going to profess and turn to other things. It's not happening outside of the church, friends. It happens in the church, at least in the physical church. Not the true church, but the physical church, what we see. There is going to be an upsurge in apostasy unlike anything we've ever seen before. When a church repudiates its confession in this way, it is not a valid church anymore. It is apostate. It's like when it preaches the truth and then it begins to preach against the truth. It's become apostate. Men like um, Martin Luther and John Calvin exposed apostasy in the Catholic Church during the Reformation. Sadly, this apostasy has continued on and on and on and on. And it makes us wonder if the Catholic Church is what Paul was prophetically pointing to here in this text. Because it continues in its apostasy. You're not saved by grace, you're saved by your works. The Pope is Christ on earth. I mean, it has these horrific blasphemous statements and things in theology. It's poison, it's terrible. So many people like me and others have just looked at the Catholic Church saying that must be the great apostasy that, that's being spoken of. The reformers during the Reformation certainly thought so. The, the, the new gay Christian movement is another apostasy that causes us all to scratch our heads and wonder, is that what it's going to be? There's a whole bunch of people that I used to stand alongside of who worship who now think that homosexuality is not a sin any longer and it's okay and God approved it and, and now that's dividing. Is that going to be the great apostasy? It's certainly starting to pick up steam in our nation. That could be it. Apostasy happens in some measure in every age. But in our text, Paul pointed to something beyond what we've seen in the past and beyond what we're seeing right now. It will be a great apostasy where great numbers of so-called Christians will abandon ship. So you can count on it. When that begins to happen, you know that the return of the Lord is very near. Second, the Antichrist must be revealed. Paul referred to him as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction in our language, anti means to be opposed to or to be against. However, in the New Testament, 
The New Testament idea of Antichrist refers to someone who is more than simply against Christ. In the Greek, anti means substitute. So the Antichrist will not be merely an opponent of Christ. He will be one who seeks to usurp the office of Christ and substitute himself for Christ. Now, if you know anything about Catholicism, you should be saying, isn't that what the Pope's been doing for a long time? Yes. This Antichrist will be a false Christ, if you want to call him that. He will set himself up as a god, in a sense, in the temple that the Jews are going to one day build again. This is why it is usually thought that the Antichrist will be someone who is in the religious realm, someone who disguises himself as a faithful follower, but is actually working to undermine the authority of Christ, just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This Antichrist will partner with Satan and use, and actually probably receive from Satan, deceptive powers to convince people of falsehood, 2 Corinthians 2.9. But Christ will, part of Christ's work too, will be to destroy him with the breath of his mouth, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. I'm telling you, the reformers thought the popes were Antichrist, and for good reason. They were thoroughly evil and wicked on August 18, 1520, Martin Luther said this in one of his sermons. We here are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. No wonder he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church. These are the kinds of things that he preached. Pope Leo X was the one whom he railed against and the one whom excommunicated him. The current pope... Francis, or maybe a future pope, could in fact be the one whom Paul wrote about in this text. It's a possibility. So two things must occur before the glorious appearance and rapture, an upsurge in apostasy, and the Antichrist will be revealed. Lastly, as we begin to wrap it up, what are we to be doing in the meantime? How, would, how should we be living our lives right now? Well, let's wrap it up with a practical application. First, we are to be watching for Christ. We are to be watching for Him. We are to be watchful. We are to be watchful. We shouldn't get caught up in the things that dominate, you know, the minds and hearts of unbelievers, such as what we will eat, drink, and wear, and on and on and on and on and on. Some of us become so captivated with daily life and what's going on that we lose any sense of what's actually going on. That things are being positioned and happening, and there is apostasy, and there is an upsurge in some sense, and there are antichrist-like figures out there, and, and Christ could be coming back at any time. We, we lose any sense of that. We just, we're so captivated by what's going on in our own little lives, in our own little bubble. We should be consumed with not our daily lives and what we'll wear, eat, and, and all these things and all that, but we should be consumed with our pursuit of the kingdom of God. We should seek above all the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our own lives. That's what we ought to be working on. Not the 
consumable things that don't have any eternal value. And I, I know, I, believe me, I know how hard it is. It's easy to become captivated by what's going on or by what we possess or by what we like and what we cherish. And one of the things that sobers me is the fact that when Christ comes back during the glorious appearance and he takes us up with him, there's a judgment that happens. I would hate for him to say, you know, you, you just come up here and all that, and, and now it's time for me to tell you what you've been about. You were over at the gun store buying another gun. You weren't sharing the gospel with somebody. You weren't preaching me to someone. You were squandering your time on something that's not going to really do anything. Oh, I know you enjoy going to the range and shooting. It's a lot of fun. You should see my weaponry. Why do you have that cannon pointed at me, Lord? Yeah. We should be watching for Christ. We should be watchful. Wow, look at what's going on. Not so much that that's all we ever concern ourselves with because we can get all wrapped up in the eschatology thing. You ever notice churches that just do endless prophecy series? Okay, you need to focus on now. There's a gospel that you should be preaching, not just waiting for him to come back. It's part of it. So that's the first thing. Second, we should be ready to go. Let me ask you this. If Christ came back today, would you be ready to go with him? So many of us would be like, you know, uh, that, that example that Christ had when he was talking to some people and they were considering following him and they were like, well, let me go bury my father. Let me go deal with this. Let me go deal with that. Let me just finish the trans transfer of this rifle. That would be my issue. You know, I, I like guns. <laughs> would you be ready to go with him? If not, we need to change what we're doing. If we're not living in a way that is pleasing to him right now, then his return will come as a great shock and surprise to us, won't it? Hey, I wasn't ready for you. Wow, do you think he can come back next Wednesday? I know the trumpet blew, but you can blow it again. Third, we should be anxious for his return, right? It's something that we anxiously await because we know that it's awesome. I mean, this is done on this side here, and it's just going to be great because it's really terrible. Have you ever been looking forward to seeing someone? You know, you wait for the sound of that person's car in the driveway or that knock on the door, you know. Maybe some of you did this with your spouse when you were courting back in the day. And now when their car pulls up, you're like, dang it, he's home. <laughs> Son of a gun. There goes my night. But there was a time when you were like, he's here, right? Oh, it's the pizza guy. I did this the other day with my wife, and it's been a long time since I've ever really thought like that, because we're never apart, you know, and it's, sometimes it's good to have a little time between you, you know. She's downstairs, so it doesn't matter. But, you know, she was gone for a couple days in Monterey, you know, and, and, and when she pulled up, I heard the door shut, and I was like, first of all, I was really coming at it from a selfish perspective, because the house looked like a nuke went off in it. I was tired of dealing with the kids. So there was a selfish thing to it. But really, I just started thinking, gosh, my wife is walking up. You know, she has to knock on the door because we only have one set of keys. It's up to me whether I want to open it or not. Look through the peephole, you know. Who are you? You look like Carl Malden, you know. Those things just distort whatever's on the other side. And it's her, and I was so happy that she was home, you know. It was just weird sleeping, you know, and then, okay, I'll take her pillow, you know. You ever just 
anxiously anticipate someone's return? The example I've given you is, 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 is cheesy and it's pretentious, but it's, we should await the return of Christ in such a way. I'm so waiting for him to come back. I can't wait for him to come back because it's just going to be good. It's going to be good. Lastly, we should be working for him. Okay, these are all things that we can be doing as we anticipate his arrival. We, we should be working for him. Watching is the evidence of faith, but working is the evidence of faith in action. And our faith should be active. If our faith is not active, we probably don't have true saving faith. That's what James says in 2.17, I believe, somewhere around there. If the Lord were to come back tomorrow or the next day or in 10 years, he should find us serving one another in our communities with the gospel. If Christ appears on June 25th, he will likely find Melissa Greer down here selling items at a block sale so that she can raise money for our kids' ministry. And she will, he will very likely find Carl carrying items down to it for Melissa. He's going to find both of them at work for him. Now, what's he going to find you doing? You know? Of course, Melissa, as you're doing that, and if he were to appear, you'll suddenly realize you don't need to raise money for this project anymore. You'll be like, okay, we're just done. You know? It'll be awesome. I mean, what is he going to find you doing? What if he were to come back today? And we say, oh, well, he won't. He can't. And he's, it's, 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 you know, there's more stuff that has to happen. Well, you don't know that. The apostasy might be here. The Antichrist might be here. It certainly looks like it in some sense. What will you be doing? Will you be working for him? You know, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the judgment of the church, he follows that whole line of thinking with the fear of the Lord because his great fear wasn't torment or punishment that would come during that moment for him, but it was that the Lord would tell him back his life as a Christian and what he did, and he would point to an area where he wasn't committed and devoted. The Apostle Paul had great fear of that. He did not want, this is why he talks about running the race rightly. He didn't want to stand before his Lord and have the Lord tell him, well, you know, you squandered a lot of your time and why wouldn't we not have that same attitude? So what do we do in the meantime? We should be watching for him. We should be ready for him. We should be anxious for him. We should be working for him. Amen. He's coming back. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I hope that the Holy Spirit has taken the truths that, uh, that we've heard each week and driven them down into your heart where they take seed and then burst forth with love for God, love for others, service, all the things that we've talked about.